Yes, hello, how are we doing? Thanks for tuning in. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod with me, Ali Maxwell, and him, George Elek. We are sponsored by Betfair. And last time we came to you for the betting show, we came to you from a hotel room in Madeira. We're now back on home soil. George Elek, we got back late last night to a post... Early this morning. Early this morning, some would say, to a post-apocalyptic Gatwick Airport. How are you feeling? How are you doing? Did you have a nice time on holiday with me? Is this a very strange first question to the uh, podcast? <laughs> I had a lovely time on holiday with you. Um, you know, public service announcement, maybe, that people should, um, if you haven't been on holiday yet and you're thinking about going away, my one bit of advice to you would be don't get a flight that lands post 10.30pm because the days of being able to sail through the airports are over. Um, there was a, a long old uh, queue at Gatwick to get through uh, customs. There was a soap opera within the airport itself where people were, were actually just um, taking off the cordons and slipping through into other queues and there were arguments going on as the Gatwick staff tried to, I mean, it was just mayhem, uh, <laughs> resulting in, in me running through Gatwick Airport with golf, with golf clubs trying to get the last train to Victoria that I'd just about got. Yes. Um, but it still meant uh, not head not hitting the pillow till near enough 2am, um, which was late. But then I woke up this morning, didn't set an alarm. This hasn't happened to me since I was about, I guess, probably 20 years old. Didn't set an alarm, woke up, looked at my phone, expecting it to be, I don't know, 9, 9.30, 11.37. Um, so I'm talking to you, Ali, at, at seven past four. And it's pretty weird to me that I've only been awake for five hours cause, or four and a half hours. That, that isn't... Well, five hours before involved. you opened your eyes, I was out with the puppy having a wee and a mm. poo. Her, not me. Um, but <laughs> but you, also, you also managed to get through... Gatwick much much quicker than I and live closer so yeah it's I, one all. I had the inside track look I just think before we start talking football another public service announcement Madeira a I barely knew her b <laughs> really nice place to go we were a group of three lads and we went to have some warm weather and some nice food and drink and play some golf and I think on all fronts we felt pretty well. We felt pretty well provided for, by the island of Madeira, the autonomous region of Portugal, that's actually quite close to Africa. <laughs> we did. It was a great place. Um, we've even discussed going back there with our other halves, which is how much we enjoyed it. Um, I, I couldn't recommend it more. We, we, this podcast is not sponsored by the Madeiran Tourist Board, um, but I would say that if anyone's looking for somewhere to go, which um, is very nice, very quite quiet, but in quite a fun way, like lots of every building in the whole of Funchal seems to be a restaurant or a bar which is quite nice um I loved it mate I yeah. had a great time and, and I, had, I had great company as well in, in yourself I spent most of the most of the week giggling which was fun that is a sign of a good holiday this is a lovely thing to realize about someone that you already spend more time with than anyone else in the world but I actually think you're one of the best people in the whole world to travel with thank you very much I think that we should call you should have a TV show called Travel Man because you're amazing. You're a as mentioned very giggly, which is great fun because normally you're pretty um pretty grumpy on the pod. Serious. Um very serious. Uh you had you, you just have such a lovely way about uh holidaying. Uh very open to other people's uh, needs and desires uh, but always finding the best restaurants, best bars and being able to navigate there uh, without any fuss. I I loved it. And it's actually a bit of Good. a blow because I, I must admit there's a part of me that thought going on holiday with the guy that I work with and also spending, as we did, five hours on Saturday in a British-style pub watching 
Sky Sports to make sure that we were across the League 2 action. Some, sometimes I took a step back and thought, this feels a bit weird, but really it felt so right. Uh, and I, I you, never thought it felt weird. I thought I was, I was worried you were going to blame me for your three-day hangover that you're about to experience. So I'm glad mate. that that hasn't started yet. Well, I wondered if you'd bring that up. It was the altitude, <laughs> right? It was the altitude. <laughs> On top of the mountains, playing golf, very thin air, and I was struggling to breathe and to hit the ball. Anyway, that's quite enough of that because there was plenty of football across the EFL. 16 games, so less than half of the normal offering, but plenty to get our teeth into. And not only that, we've got a special guest on the podcast later today. Hopefully you will have seen that in the title of the pod. So excited to be chatting to someone pretty close to our hearts, particularly mine, uh, William Hondemark, who some of you will remember me talking about back in, I think, May or very late April. I saw him play for Harrogate against Cambridge. I was very taken by him and then by his story. Uh, And I said if and when he changes clubs this summer as his Norwich contract was up, we would sponsor him. And we followed through with our word. For the first time ever, we, as Not The Top 20 podcast, are sponsoring an EFL player. William signed for Barnsley just a couple of weeks ago. He's already been in a few match day squads and just really, really chuffed that he wants to chat to us because he probably thinks mm. that I'm particularly quite weird uh, and I'm looking forward to, well, hammering that home. Uh, and we're going to learn more about William Hondemark later on in the pod. But weekend action first. George starting in League One, starting with four home wins in League One in the four games. Why don't we begin with our new league leaders, Plymouth Argyle. Now, let's be very clear. They have played two games more than Wigan and Sunderland and one more than Wickham. But they're top of the league and they haven't lost since opening day. This time around, it was a 2-1 win against Burton. How did you see it? Uh, Yeah, an impressive performance because I think that Burton, um, despite their recent form, have put in some some pretty high-level efforts which haven't really been rewarded. But this was the first time I think we've seen Burton really struggled to make an impact. They improved in the second half, but this was a fully deserving uh, win, a fully deserved win from, from Plymouth Argyle, who were a better side throughout. Um, you know, we, we said a lot about Ryan Hardy this season and his goal-scoring form, but he was probably the key player in this game um, in terms of, of turning provider. He nearly scored um, probably his best goal of the season so far, which is saying a lot given the, the goals that he has scored um, with a curling effort to just clip the top of the bar uh, in the first half at nil-nil and after that he was just very very solid you know he, he provided the assist for Broom's goal um, with a really nice turn before kind of putting it on a play for him and more selfish more tunnel vision strikers who probably would have gone for goal from a, from a worse angle um, I mean you know we've spoken a lot about Plymouth's defensive record this season and the thing that impresses me most and, and I kind of wish I'd spoken about it on um, when we spoke about Plymouth Argyle last time we were on Sky a couple of weeks ago I said that the the back three is um, Galloway, Scar and Wilson. That's doing a disservice to Macaulay Gillespie, who's actually the one who comes in um, for any of those three. And every time he does, it doesn't really seem to impact the performances. You know, Galloway scored his goal the week, the week before. He was the one who came out here, I think, due to injury or suspension because he wasn't in the squad. Um, and Gillespie came in and slotted in very nicely. So it's not necessarily a case of just having those three first choice centre backs and, and when one of them is out it's going to fall apart because they've got someone um, else in there who can do the job and they are a team who at the moment just look very very compact very settled in their shape um, very knowing exactly what every what every man has to do uh, Jeff Cook was out here as well so Agard came in who's still looking I think for his first league goal um, but they're just a, a team who are performing consistently at a very high level, both in attack and defence. And we saw the, the clips of Ryan Lowe after the game. Um, it looked 
more like the reaction of a manager after an away win towards the back end of the season rather than a manager going towards the home support um, in October. But I think this just goes to show that Argyle fans really feel, and, and everyone involved in the club, low, low included, really feel like something quite special is starting to happen there. Um, and whilst many of us watching on as neutrals or fans of other clubs might think that this is one of those early bits of form that could see them fall away. And I think probably the likelihood is that it might do. Uh, they will be doing everything they can to prove that isn't the case. And with the smattering of individual quality they have throughout the side, um, they'll feel confident that they can keep this going. Mm. And they've missed players as well. Ennis up top. Uh, Mayer is just coming back. Danny Mayer, who's been their best player essentially over the last three years or so. Uh, George Cooper as well hasn't hasn't featured barely at all. So, um, yeah, plenty of reason for them to get stronger when those uh, players return. That second goal was probably one of my favourites this weekend. That The keeper, Cooper, caught across and then basically just bowled it like a cricket ball um, in behind for the electric Ryan Hardy, who his first touch, Hardy... The first touch after the goalkeeper's throw was about 25 yards out from goal at the yeah. other end. It was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and he laid it off for Broom to sweep home. Ding, ding, ding. No. Broom sweep. Claxon has to be done. Uh, so congrats to Argyle. You are our league leaders for the moment. Uh, but Wickham are not far off. In fact, they've got a better points per game record. And as we know, that's the real quiz. You never know what could be around the corner in this game, in this world. They are five out of five at Adams Park this season. The atmosphere at that place, you know, you talk about Argyle, this is another club, another set of home fans in particular who are pretty confident that something is is very special at their club. I don't want to say something special is happening because I think they probably feel that it's it's been special for three, four, five years and that's because mainly of the manager that they have, the character that he is, the team that he has built uh, and the very small but close-knit staff uh, at the club. It, it's uh, it's an amazing place to be at the moment, Wanderers. And it's early goals doing the business for them at home. Uh, in three of their five home wins, including this win that was 2-0 against Chills, they've taken the lead in the first 10 minutes and then just seen it out from there. And um, they really do blitz teams early on. You have to be right at it straight away. And if not, then Wickham are going to get you. Uh, the first goal was very, very Wickham Wanderers. Uh, a Stockdale kick evokes Flick and then Gareth McCleary showing every ounce of quality and he's probably the current player to talk about McCleary with with Wickham there's always someone and there's almost always a backstory that involves them having fallen out of love with the game or not being appreciated somewhere or undervalued picked up on a small wage comparative to, to what you might expect and then having an unbelievable time and contributing to this team and it's McCleary this season who looks like their sort of star man, you have to say, in, in terms of making things happen in the final third when the uh, longer approach and the set pieces aren't working so well. His quotes after the game, we've seen these a million times for, for Wickham players playing under Ainsworth. I'm enjoying my football more than any other stage of my career. I was thinking of retiring, training with the reserves, running in my local park, not playing for Reading, underappreciated, all that stuff. How often do we hear players say that about Ainsworth compared to any other manager? It's unbelievable. And it got me thinking, George, we can almost play a bit of a game here. Which talented footballer that needs a bit of love will Ainsworth save next? So my answer, and I haven't given you any time here where I've had some time to research this, but I'm just going to tell you my answer in case it comes true. Scott Sinclair, I reckon. 22-23 season, 
Wickham Wanderers. His contract with Preston is up in the summer. I reckon because of his age, although he's only 32, he'll be 33 at the end of the season, presumably a fairly high wage given where they signed him from in Celtic. I reckon North End are going to start phasing him out. Um, and I reckon other clubs in the Championship won't bother with him. They'll they'll talk themselves into the fact that he's old and he hasn't played much. And then Ainsworth will get him on a bargain and it turns out he'll, he'll still be good and he'll probably still contribute to this Wickham side. So there's, there's a future transfer that I've just made up that I actually think could well happen. I've got mine as well. It's probably um, reliant on on this Wickham Wanderers season ending in a promotion, but I reckon Lyle Taylor could have his Ooh. career revitalised by Gareth Ainsworth, a player who we know needs a specific kind of love, a specific kind of manager to perform. Um, and I don't think he's going to get that at Forest. Interesting. Uh, Jill's on the receiving end of this Wickham victory. Jill's in the blood uh, Twitter account vlog blog that we follow excellent fan channel um said it was abject i have no reason to disbelieve that i i I had laid wickham on the betting show and it was mainly because i felt like jills and maybe this was a bit of a euphemism have been hard to beat this season they hadn't lost many games albeit they weren't picking up a ton of points a ton of wins um and i think for the most part of this season they have been quite hard to beat but there's no doubt in my mind they're not reaching the same levels as last season now in a sense, we can put that down to the league itself being stronger and it not being enough even to be as good as last year where Gillingham massively overachieved, you have to say. But they haven't beaten anyone in the top half that they've played yet. They've lost all four games against teams in the current top six. They're not matching their attacking output from last season where they had Jordan Graham and Verdane Oliver who, who were just a combination that fits so well together. Graham now having left Oliver, not getting that service uh, maybe to the same extent. And then they've slipped a little defensively too. And, and those two things are going to have a big impact on your ability if your Jills to stay in games, to keep them low margin and to turn them into a battle, uh, which they were so good at last year and to pick up points upon winning that battle. Um, there's some pre- fairly strong protests about their owner, Paul Scally, as well at the game. Something to keep an eye on for sure uh, at this point in time. And Jill's in a pretty tough spot at the moment. Um, not panic stations just yet, but uh, not at the races, certainly here. Sheffield Wednesday won Bolton nil. It looked like a, a pretty spicy game on paper, George. We actually had this one on on iFollow, uh, on the iPad, while we sat in, what was it called? Pub number two and watched Gillette Pub number two. Saturday. Great place. One of some of the best. Prego no bolo de cacio. Oh, which, yes, please. As we found out very early on in our trip, is a Madeirian speci- speciality of kind of flank steak <laughs> in in kind of garlic bread. Yeah. That doesn't end there because they also put cheese in it, fine. Ham, mm, alarm bells started going off there. Me and you actually ordered our first prego no bolo de cacio with no ham. Uh, and then but our second and third agreed that we should have the local ham in as well. Lettuce and tomato. We never took on the especial, which they do at, at pub number two, which also has bacon and egg in it. Insane. Uh, which just seems like a little bit too much. That seems like every meal in one, um, you know, you've got your breakfast, bacon and egg, your steak for lunch, and then your garlic bread for your dinner. <laughs> um, but I would recommend that thoroughly if we've done a good enough job of persuading, persuading people to go to Funchal and specifically pub number two. What are we talking about? <laughs> Sheffield Wednesday one, Bolton nil. Yes. I thought, George, okay. quite a weird game. Sort of weirdly open, quite low quality, but but also just, yeah, open. Like very loose and yeah. quite spacious in a way that I didn't necessarily expect. Yeah, I mean, you, you had more eyes on this, I would say, than I did in the pub. I was kind of mainly on Gillette and you had this in front of you on your iPad, uh, not really turning the screen so the people sitting on your right could see it. But um, uh, yeah, it was. I mean, from what, from what I saw, Bolton started the game much the stronger and it like the, the side likely to score. And as the game continued... Uh, that the, the shift 
became not necessarily Wednesday's favourite, but just, just a more balanced game. Um, you know, Berahino missed a very good chance dragging into the side netting. Uh, Gregory's goal itself, I mean, a brilliant play, bit of play from Jack Hunt. Now, I'm not a massive, uh, sorry, I'm not against Hunt at all as a player, but I had to double check with you about three times that it was actually him who did that because not only was it some great pace to get down the line, a lovely touch, but it was that the timing and the pass of the ball uh, to Gregory was brilliant. Uh, a really good assist and a great finish from Gregory as well, who who should, as we know, be very, very good at, at this level. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think Wednesday are going to be this team this season who are going to be solid enough to rarely get blitz, but don't look consistent enough to push their way clear of teams, basically. Uh, it looks to me like it's going to be a lot of low value, low um, margin games. That isn't necessarily the worst. I mean, it's not great, but it's not the worst. And we've seen plenty of sides in the EFL have very good seasons, winning games 1-0, uh, drawing a lot of games as well. Um, and to keep this Bolton attack at bay, because you are right, there was a lot of space in the middle of the park. Um, Dapo Afalayan had his uh, weakest game uh, for a long while. Um, but Bolton have, have done, you know, Bolton have gone to, gone, you know, look away. They did to Ipswich at Portman Road the other day. Um, they score a lot of goals and they didn't really look like scoring. I mean, they could have picked Nick one here or there, but didn't look like a consistent threat. So that, I think, is probably the most um, promising part, I guess, of, of Wednesday's play. Uh, I don't want to bang on about this, but obviously Bailey Peacock-Farrell not in the squad due to international duty and um, Will Smith had a decent game in goal. So I'll be in- intrigued to see if Joe Will Smith manages to retain his place. I doubt it. Peter Lohman, Wednesday fan, who's part of the NTT20 squad, uh, said a lot about this game, but particularly that he reckoned if they'd swapped Gregory for Owen Doyle, the two number nines, the score might as well have been swapped around or probably would have been swapped around. And that's pretty much how I saw it as well. Uh, Gregory was very sharp, a great movement and a header in the first half, great movement and a finish in the second half of the goal. Whereas Doyle, albeit there was one chance where... He was either really poor or a bit unlucky uh, when the ball was squared to him by Kachunga and Iorfa just about got a touch on it to prevent a tap-in, but just didn't look as sharp as Gregory. And uh, So I thought that summed up the game fairly well because it gives an idea that actually, in general play, it was pretty even overall. And and if anything, Bolton probably had more dangerous territory, I'd say, uh, or dangerous opportunities, but they they couldn't convert them. Ian Everett's fighting talk has come out again. Uh, We remember it from the first half of last season. He said, I don't care who we play, Sunderland, Sheffield Wednesday, Wigan, home or away, we could score six. And that's not arrogance. It's based on the clear-cut opportunities we are creating. And you know I hate it when managers start talking about we could score five or six. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I kind of see what he's saying. And I actually find myself agreeing to an extent not not necessarily wow. with the number six but i, I the, the overall point that he's making uh, i don't disagree with and well it's it's apt that he said wigan home or away because it's wigan at home this weekend it's <laughs> going to be an absolutely cracking game that i cannot wait uh ipswich beat shrewsbury shrewsbury 2-1 um and it was a bit weird uh as well because shrews didn't offer much um, but with one bit of quality from Wally they equalised and then they very nearly went ahead through Bowman outside of that almost nothing happened now after Bon had put Ipswich 2-1 up uh, on the 54th minute Chaplin having scored the opener there was only one more shot in the whole game total that and I I'm sure that has happened before, and I don't check the specific last 40 minutes shot totals for every EFL game, although I do my research pretty extensively for most of them. Uh, but I just, I can't, I can't understand what happened for 40 minutes, George. One side ostensibly chasing a game, but presumably just not having the requisite quality. The other side in Ipswich, who 
less than a week ago we saw score six. Uh, just, I don't know, passing it around the back, I guess. I didn't really understand that. It's a bit of a weird one with, with Ipswich at the moment because last week they only had two shots total, didn't they, in defeat mm. to Accrington. I think in this game they had eight. Um, but I noticed using the Opta analyst stats that we love so much that they've had the second fewest open play shots in the whole league, which is surprising. Um, and yeah, Shrews didn't really do much. Uh, and yet the way that, that this Ipswich side are, which is just not yet complete. They, they did almost concede uh, to go 2-1 down. So, I, I mean, look, the way that Macaulay Bonn is right now means that they were probably good for the win and, and it was a brilliant flicked header for the goal. He is scoring a goal every 84 minutes, which is pretty sensational. And he is scoring with more than every other shot. So more than one in two shots. So the finishing is exceptional. And dare I say, it might be still papering over a couple of lingering cracks here. I mean, amateur psychology stuff here, but I just think because of the expectation around Ipswich and because um, everything surrounding the club um, and the poor start, I just wonder if when they get ahead, there is so much pressure. You know, they're, they're a side who haven't really got used to winning yet. Um, I guess the striking thing is that the 6-0 win over Doncaster showed such a different way of holding on to a lead where they just continue to pour forward and get their goals. Um, you know, there's not necessarily anything bad about seeing out a game for 36 minutes or whatever it was, just by having most of the ball and keeping the Shrewsbury team away from from their own goal. You know, I'm looking at the the who scored touch and pass map now, and in the basically from the goal onwards, they Shrewsbury had one touch of the ball in Ipswich's box. They had about six touches of the ball in the final third, all of which are in wide areas. So. I would be fairly concerned as an Ipswich fan, given that twice, both at Accrington and against Shrewsbury here, there's been basically zero attacking threat for a large part of the game. But there has to be, you know, it's not as flashy. It doesn't grab the headlines as much. But there, there is, and it is Shrewsbury who struggled to score anyway, um, consistently this season, especially away from home. Um, but there has to be something positive about that. You know, when you we talk about games, game state a lot on the podcast here, Ipswich were holding on to a lead for a long period of time for basically most of the second half and Shrewsbury couldn't get near them and that sets them up very very well I think quickly they will get used then to being ahead and being able to hold on to leads which is something they've been so bad at this season um so yeah a, a statistical quirk for sure but a positive as well as quite a surprising um negative side going forward yes Okay, let's talk about Thanks. League Two, uh, which we are, well, we're going to relish uh, because it was a good weekend of League Two action. Started on Friday night with Tranmere disposing of Cole U. Uh, but we're going to start with Forest Green nil, Swindon 2. This one was live on the telly. Lots of people would have had eyes on it. It was a, a mouth-watering fixture and an entertaining affair, uh, which we enjoyed very much with our first few pints of uh, local lager Corral, or John Corral, as we called it, of course. I was, I was in the Guinness, I think, actually. Good point. Good point. George, Forest Green lost 2-0 at home to Swindon Town, who have now beaten... Uh, local-ish rivals, Bristol Rovers and Forest Green, in back-to-back weekends away from home. What did you make of the game? I thought it was two sides who were impressive in their own way. Um, I think Swindon fans will probably hear that and say, excuse me, we beat them 2-0, they were rubbish. But there is a risk here of of some serious outcome bias um, on the back of of the scoreline, which Swindon totally deserves. I'm not taking anything away from them. And I've said all season that I think they're a very good side. And this was probably the game where you look at it and you look at their performance, you look at what they did to 
to a team who are four points clear at the top um, and you say, yes, OK, I, I think, you know, they're probably a striker short. Um, but this is a Swindon side who are competing and playing at a level that makes them totally viable t- title challenges, promotion contenders, whatever it is. Um, because of the way that they play their football, they're being set up very, very well. They've got the individual quality that we know about. You know, Payne, Gladwin, um, the, the classic ones. I said to you just before the assist for uh, McCurdy's goal, I said, Gladwin's kind of the lead to De Bruyne, isn't he? Mainly talking about how he, how he can't really run. And uh, then he produced, I mean, it's not a very good comparison, to be honest, but then he produced the most De Bruyne assist of all time, where he just got the ball on the inside channel and hit a cross in from deep, and like a brilliant no-look cross in for McCurdy, who was a brilliant finish as well. Um, Agree on both fronts, by said, the way. It was a comparison that really made little sense and then immediately was somehow backed up as if by magic. It was more because we'd been talking, watching the Nations League a couple of nights before about how De Bruyne can, can't really run anymore, how right. he's lost a yard. Yeah, uh, And and Glavin, I know, isn't the most mobile player, but has very, very good on-ball qualities. So right. I, was trying, I, was, I was trying to hark back to that conversation. Well done. Um, but, uh, yeah, before Forest Green, you know, the, the man of the match was, was quite clearly Lewis Ward, um, the Swindon goalkeeper, not only for the penalty save later on, which wouldn't have really mattered much, except for those of us who might have backed Mel Matt to score. Um, Josh Marsh took the penalty and it wasn't a great penalty, but it was well saved by Ward. But he, he made loads of saves in the game as well, um, both at 0-0, at 1-0. Uh, and then, of course, that big one at 2-0 too. So um, in Jojo Wallacott, they soon then have a, have a goalkeeper who I think has been the best goalkeeper in League Two so far. But Ward stepping up here and showing their serious quality for that shirt um, in goal for Swindon. You know, Forest Green were not at their best. But if, if, that, if one of those don't go in, um, if Ward doesn't have a game like this, uh, then the game could have changed very, very quickly. The, the crucial part here was that McCurdy was able to finish the first and basically finish the second um, before Simpson knocked it in. Uh, but on another day with similar performance levels, I, I don't think you could have begrudged Forest Green to get something out of this game. Um, so yeah, a, a big win. But I think the key thing here is just to show, yes, Forest Green beat, yes, Swindon beat Forest Green 2-0. But this wasn't Forest Green having an off day and Swindon beating them. I think it was just two teams who played very well, two of, two of the better teams in the division, uh, and Swindon getting the three points that proves show, will show them. It's an incredible journey that um, they've been on over the last couple of months, given the given what happened in the summer. But it'll show them that those fears of, of relegation after the you know that came in straight after the fears of any existential fears were subsided. Um, you know they can dream a lot bigger than that now. Yeah, just a couple of things to pick up on. I think you've done that justice there. I mean, Ward only playing in goal for Swindon because Jojo Wallacott was one of, I think it was five or six players they had on international duty. Wallacott's been so good in the first month or so of the season that he started for Ghana uh, over the weekend as well. And, and Ward came in and matched Wallacott's performances. They have been getting a lot out of their goalkeepers. I think that's fair to say. They're, they're not necessarily a team that shuts the opposition down over 90 minutes, but uh, they're getting a lot from their keepers. Uh, Louis Reed continues to impress. He's, he's definitely, I guess, I guess what I should say is Swindon have a lot of very eye-catching, flashy, technical, attacking players. Uh, Payne is excellent, as we know. Williams on on international duty with Wales, but has rare quality for the level as well. Gladwin, you've mentioned. McCurdy was the, the star man here. Louis Reed at the base of midfield, I think, knits it all together really well. And his range of passing is, is very... Well, it stands out at this level for sure. He's been a really good signing. And then McCurdy himself, uh, he's box office, isn't he? Uh, he clearly is unbelievably passionate about the game of football and um, 
a character that rubs people up the wrong way. And we've seen that with his career in the last two seasons because two years ago, I loved watching him play for Carlisle. He did very well, objectively, for Carlisle. But his character plus Carlisle fans' general demeanour did not mesh well. Uh, they did not get on well. He, They gave him stick for his social media output and posts most of them about Chelsea FC, who he seems to love more than any other footballer, loves the team that they support. Uh, he would respond by scoring and then shushing his own fans. Uh, that wasn't very smart. Left Carlisle, picked up by Vale last season and barely got a sniff. Just a completely lost year. And look, I mean, Vale weren't in the best nick and you just think, how could this player with such quality not have got a chance? And and you, you assume that it's a problem with, with application, whatever it might be, with, with personality clash. But there is no doubt of the quality that he has. Um, and I just love watching him play. He just, he's always involved um, and he was brilliant in, in, in this game as well. So I hope that Garner has found someone, or rather McCurdy has found someone, a manager that he respects enough and who is getting the best out of him to settle, not to upset the fans too much, not to be incendiary in his behaviour because he's a cracking player. Um, and his celebration is is great fun and also quite confusing because he slides on his knees, he pulls out what I consider to be a, a bow, like a bow and arrow from, over, from a quiver over his shoulder, and then he, he shoots the bow and arrow so far so normal and then he starts sort of spraying it around like it's a machine gun like he's spraying bullets yeah i think it's a medieval super soaker medieval that makes sense yes because of the arrow i mean i don't i never had to do anything there when i was a kid using a super soaker so that's the only thing i can imagine i don't know why i don't know what he's getting hmm. some water it's a it's a certainly a celebration that befits the man and the character uh, more of that please yes. harry uh, let's talk about some of the, the more eye-catching results uh, just on paper starting with harrogate six scunthorpe nil uh, this i think was a pretty fair reflection of how both of these teams george have uh, have started the season and i guess the most notable thing that happened here probably was the top goal scorer in league two luke armstrong playing 90 minutes for a team that scored six and didn't score at all, which just kind of sums things up. It does. Um, I think this was not a massive surprise um, for those watching, um, for those who have been paying attention this season. Harrogate are a side who, when they're on their game, can be completely rampant, and that was the case here. Um, Scunthorpe just look like a shell of a team at the moment. They need something to change there because... They are. I mean, it's it's something that we, we kind of hear a lot from fans. But they, I mean, they're sleepwalking to relegation. There doesn't seem to be any urgency to change what's going on at the club uh, at all. You, know, you, you feel for Neil Cox because I don't think his job was made particularly easy for him. Um, but there's been nothing in his time as manager to suggest that he is a overly competent manager. Um, their players are consistently performing at a low level. I felt pretty sorry for the Scunthorpe fans having to stand behind that goal at Harrogate. You know, for, for if you'd told Scunthorpe fans those guys behind the goal ten years ago that they would one day be travelling not too far down the road to Harrogate and watching um, their side be three 0 down after sixteen minutes in a league game, um, that would have struck them as being pretty rock bottom. So disappointing for them. I mean, the quality of some of the goals from Harrogate was great. Patterson's running. I mean, he's just such an aggressive footballer to have. He's he's one of those guys who's never going to give you. A, a second's breath because he's aggressive off the ball. He, on the ball, he's so direct, driving at goal. A couple of goals and assists for him. Diamond, you could probably say the same about too. Um, you know, for Luke Armstrong not to get on the score sheet and Harrogate score six is a, is a bit of a message to the rest of the league that you know this isn't a a, a purple patch built on one player 
going through a, his own scoring streak. This is a very, very competent side, a very good side. Who, if you if you don't perform at a high level, they're gonna they're gonna blast you away. Uh, and that was what happened here. Please, please, Alex Patterson. It's already three 0 after sixteen minutes. Just give us a second's breath. No, <laughs> I won't. For I am an aggressive footballer, and I would like to put you to the sword. Scumthorpe. That's what happened here, and it was great to watch for Harrogate, as they always are, and it was very tough to watch from a Scunthorpe perspective. Uh, I thought there was a tiny ray of sunshine, maybe like three weeks ago, I think I said they weren't as bad as we expected, and since then, they've barely scored a goal, and they seem to concede uh, three, four, five, six every single game. So, uh, huge concerns there, I think it's fair to say, as they have been for a number of years. Sutton beat Port Vale... One hour, 23 minutes from Scunthorpe to Harrogate. It's a little bit further than just down the road, but still close enough to be quite an easier way journey. Right. Big Google Maps guys, George. Something I found out over the last few days. In fact, at one point he said, guys, do you think anyone in the world uses Google Maps as much as me? And it was hard to think of anyone who would have the need to. Not, not for driving. I mean, taking the driving part out of it, just for walking around. <laughs> just for clicking on random bars and restaurants and just looking at what people have to say. I also find Google reviews one of the funniest things around. Probably yes. while I was giggling so much. Yeah, that'll be it. Uh, Sutton 4, Port Vale 3 was insane at Gander Green Lane in, in front of, I was going to say in front of the Quest cameras. What I mean is that Quest were on site uh, and it made for a very entertaining show. I must say uh, the game matched it hugely. Vale, I mean, look, Vale last week were 2-1 down against Orient with a couple of minutes left and 1-3-2 and they probably snatched it when they probably deserved a draw and not more than that. But this is the complete opposite of that. Uh, the quality of Vale's goals, particularly their second and third goals. I mean, Tom Conlon's left peg should be put in a museum when he retires because he just does some beautiful things. The the ball out to the left back who cut it back for Proctor's goal uh, and then a sweet strike, keeping it down when it was on the bounce. Um, rare quality, Conlon. Uh, and they, they won't believe that they haven't won the game quite comfortably, I think. But there's something about Sutton. There's just something about Sutton at the moment. And who knows how long... It will last for. It could be the whole season. It could be uh, just a really good month. But, I mean, the winning goal just summed it all up at the moment, I think. Ball into the box, not quite cleared. Back in the box, goal mouth scramble. And then Rowe hoofed it through his teammates' legs into the roof of the net with bodies strewn everywhere. It's absolutely brilliant stuff. Um, and, I mean, what an addition to the league Sutton have been. Uh, as as we have mentioned a few times, not even a fully professional football club uh, until they had to be uh, over the summer. Uh, and as Quest covered, had to basically they basically lost money on becoming an EFL team because of the changes they had to make to their pitch and ground. The whole story is amazing. Uh, I would suggest people do go and watch the the whole feature because it was an amazing. Uh, it was just cool that that the highlights show happened to be there on that day. I thought it was excellent uh, and just a crazy crazy game. I it, I didn't leave feeling negative towards Vale at all they'd won four in a row before this and from what I've seen I'm pretty confident in saying this is a strong team uh, who could challenge for the automatic places and I expect them to uh, they're, they're very good defensively going forward their numbers aren't as good but I, I sort of think I sort of think at this level particularly if you have Conlon and if you have Worrell and you have a couple of strikers like Proctor and Wilson who at the moment are in pretty good form I think that's enough to score enough goals that if you're very solid defensively, you can still be a top three team. So not too worried about Vale, uh, just just blown away by Sutton and their start to the season. Basically, ever since we saw them in the flesh, they've been unbelievable. And that night they beat Hartlepool, who they came up with, who've also been a brilliant addition to the league, George. Both of them flying high here. Hartlepool beat Northampton 2-1. 
on the weekend. Coming back from 1-0 down as well, um, a big, impressive performance. It was just a great weekend for the sides who have recently been promoted from um, the National League. You, know, you mentioned Sutton there, who get the 4-3 win in the most dramatic circumstances. Harlepool beating a side who were in League One last season who made a decent start to the season, coming back as well to win 2-1. Uh, Barrow drawing one all against Lofty, Leighton Orient, and Harrogate with a 6-1 win. You know, there... I, I mentioned to you during the week, I said, you know, is there, is there any chance here that the, the quality of the National League is, is going to one day basically be on par with League Two? Because there's no doubt the top end and the bottom end. You know, I, I think it's, it's one for another podcast, but I feel like there there is just argument for there to be a, a third promotion um, place and a third relegation place from, from League Two because it doesn't make sense to consistently have sides um, who come up and, and immediately uh, are better than half of the teams in the league above them. And that's the case with this Hartlepool side. They look so com- comfortable at this level. Um, they are very hard to break down. They um, play some decent stuff at times. They can mix it up. Um, you know, and this is a a big justification for Dave Challoner and what he's done. You know, this was a bit of a, a litmus test, I guess, um, to see how, they, how good they really are. Um, after such a good start, they've gone through a difficult period where they were winless in four um, during two of those games. Um, and, you know, not necessarily the toughest fixtures either. Be beaten away at Stevenage the time before, uh, being beaten at Sutton, which we went to, and drawing at Oldham. Um, and then the home draw against Exeter, probably the, the pick of those. Um, they've got a tough run coming up now. You know, they go away to Salford uh, and then they go away to Bradford. So it's not going to get easier. Um, I still think they probably look like I would fancy Sutton to probably finish above them this season at this time. Um, but I think they're both yeah, miles clear of being one of the strugglers. Um, and this was a big win to to just put to bed any fears that the fast start wasn't going to be backed up. What was it that uh, Matthew said uh, in the Bible? Man cannot live on set pieces alone. Northampton Town mm. are finding that out the hard way now. Yes, uh, It's been a poor few weeks for them. Now, Bristol Rovers 3, Carlisle nil has quite a lot for us to get stuck into i'm going to start with with rovers and then we're going to talk about chris beach who has been relieved of his duties as carlisle united manager uh, george i want to get your thoughts on that for sure uh, a manager that we really loved last season so uh, it's a it's a tough one this but we're going to talk about rovers the winners first three cracking goals you have to say uh, the first one really slick a uh, bit of skill and finish from anthony evans who's been a, a good pickup since signing pretty late in the window then Luke Thomas, who has missed a lot of football already this season, but has attacking quality. We know that. Uh, these are the sorts of players they signed in the summer that made a lot of people stand up and take notice and say they looked like they had the best squad in the division. Of course, after six or whatever we are, eight weeks, ten weeks in, that has not necessarily uh, turned out to, to matter too much. But he came in, uh, made two really nice assists, one for Nicholson, one for Saunders. Some very weak defending, for sure, from Carlisle. The the well, one narrative about this game was basically if a team loses, will their manager get sacked? Because Chris Beach, as it turned out, did. Uh, and Barton of Bristol Rovers has clearly been under some pressure as well. Now, uh, a lot of people will have seen his pre-match interview. It was, as pre-match interviews go, pretty astonishing. Uh, we're not going to get through all of it, but I do want to get through some of it. He answered the first question <clears throat> with an 11-minute answer an 11 minute monologue. Now that's, I mean, I think that's too long and that's saying a lot um, as someone who, who could probably fairly comfortably do that and does it each week on this podcast. He, um, in the interest of balance, because obviously quotes have been lifted out of it. I've seen the video. There's some, there's some weird stuff in here, but I did like some of it as well. I, I don't have a problem with managers making a point, even if it's pretty obvious that it's 
basically pre-planned. I don't really have a problem with managers using their media duties to make a point. Um, when I say it seemed pre-planned, I don't think you come up with an 11-minute answer full of analogies if you haven't at least planned some of them beforehand. <laughs> um, but maybe he doesn't need to do as much research as I need to do before a recording. Uh, he preached a lot of positivity, which I, I like that. That's great. He appealed to the fans to create a positive atmosphere, which they did. I like that. He talked about blocks of 10 games and how things don't happen overnight, but it's about incremental improvements. All good stuff, all stuff that I, I nod along to when I see any manager say that, whoever it is. But he also said some unusual stuff, um, which didn't escape the headline makers, did it? He said, for example, my worst ever finish as a player was fifth position in League Two. Uh, sorry, <clears throat> let me start that again. Barton said, my worst ever finish as a player was fifth position in Division 2. So on a bad day, the mountains I have scaled as a player are higher than any mountain that's ever been scaled by Bristol Rovers as an organisation. I think their best finish is a couple of positions below Barton's ever best ever finish as a player. I know how to get up high mountains. I know how to be a Sherpa because that's how I see my job, to lead young lads and lead them up the football pyramid. The football mountains maybe they didn't think they were capable of before. For me, Everest is winning a World Cup. K2 is winning the Champions League getting up those big, big peaks. I haven't got to the top of those mountains, but I've been up some high mountains with lovely altitude that are really difficult, and when you get up there, the air is thin. Not as much since I've been here, but I regularly go out and climb Snowdon or Ben Lomond. To get to the top of that mountain isn't easy. It doesn't matter how fit you are or how much training you've done. When I was a player, I wanted to climb Everest. Since I've had kids, I don't want to die on Everest and leave my kids without a dad. But when my kids grow up, if I'm still fit enough, I might go and have a go and try to get up there. In footballing terms, this is my Everest now. This is the highest mountain for me because my professional career is on the line. Uh, some pretty standout quotes, you have to say. And a good win against a poor Carlisle side, George, who have sacked Chris Beach. What do you make of that? Yeah, a necessary win. I, I don't think Bristol Rovers were all that here again. I mean, they had seven shots in the game, three of which were from about 40 yards. Just one of those days where when you've had a bad start, you need these days where, where it flies in a, a bit. Um, and up against a side who, as you say, are probably one of the few sides who maybe had a worse start than them in Carlisle, uh, which has led to Chris Beach losing his job. Um, it, it's really difficult because often the first three or four months is the most telling, I think, when you've got a new manager who you don't know much about. You know, I remember Mike Duff's arrival at Cheltenham and within three or four months, you were like, yeah, this this guy looks like he is pretty special and he knows what he's doing and he knows how to set up a team to be very effective in in football matches. And with Beach, it was exactly the same. You know, we, even though I think the underlying data suggested that Carlisle were running a bit hot, they were untouchable for long swathes of the beginning of last season. Um, and the recruitment looked, and there was a quite a, clear style to, to the way that he wanted to play football um high energy fairly attritional but impactful and, and we spoke a lot about how last season their their covid issues you know they they were on a roll they had to take a two-week break when they came back they weren't the same team had a, had a big issue but i don't really buy that now you, you've had nine and a half months since then albeit of course a couple of them with no football in the summer but enough time to to turn that around if um if it's going to be successful, I my hunch is that Chris Beach is somebody who will, if he manages to get another job, and there's no there's no um, 
there's no fact that he will if you um if you think of, of who he's leaving and, and what position Carlisle are in in league two you know he might have to drop down to the national league to do to do so I think there's clearly something there where he is able to build something good um and I wonder if the return of fans after a period of such bad form at the back end of last season uh, may have played its part in this I have a feeling if fans had returned to games say in December last year when Carlisle were flying high, his relationship with those fans and well, them buying into what he was trying to do would have completely changed it. Um, but I think the pressure's been on since the first or second um, game this season because of the poor, the poor finish, because it's just a continuation of a poor run. So I think it's probably a fair result. It hasn't felt to me like there's been any, you know, there's been no signs that he's going to turn this around in the next couple of weeks or months. So they have to make the change. Um, but I do think there is something in, in Beach and it's just a massive question now of who they bring in because Nobody necessarily springs to mind at the moment who I think would be um, a good fit. I see that Danny Granger is the bookie's favourite. Not a massive surprise there, given his relationship with the club as a player. Um, but we know very little of him as a manager or a coach. Um, so we'll see. I mean, Newport look like they're going down the route of looking for a promising, you know, kind of the Rob Edwards route, I guess, looking for a promising young coach who's, who hasn't managed yet, but is part of a setup um, higher up the pyramids. Um, I think that's, that would be a good way for Carlisle to go, um, but we'll see what happens. Can't disagree with any of that. I, I did wonder when I was thinking about this, and this is a, you're at the risk of getting on the wrong side of correlation does not equal causation, but I was thinking a bit about Barnsley. Now, of course, Ishmael left Barnsley, um, but in terms of style of play, Carlisle may not have been as extreme as Barnsley, but it yeah. was the the launch and squish, as we called it. You know, very direct play, mostly aerial, and a very very intense press, which teams found very difficult. There was ty- there were there were people who opined during last season that maybe the schedule and how crazy it was, and maybe the lack of fans helped teams that played in that way uh, more so than in a normal season. It's so hard to measure that, but I can't. I couldn't help but make the comparison. Uh, Barnsley obviously massively struggling, albeit not really trying to play the exact same way this season. I just wanted to flag that up, but I couldn't agree more about what you said about Beach. Last season, we spoke a lot about how he was ticking at that time all of the managerial pigeonholes, basically. I think there are three central tenets to football management in the EFL. We rate managers as tacticians, uh, as coaches, as... Uh, recruiters as as savvy in the transfer market if that's their job and as man managers that's four pigeonholes right and it seemed like he was kind of crushing all all of those uh, which is pretty rare certainly at league two level Uh, he had built a squad on a not a huge budget they did have a bit of money from the Jared Branthwaite sale but he did really well uh, and that was not matched this summer and I think we've seen them suffer big time and and you have to say didn't cope with the disappointing times particularly well albeit uh, we're still pretty impressed with how he, he built that team if only for a few months and um, we we hope to see him again in management or at least I certainly would and I'm sure you would too uh, a couple more results from the weekend Tramia 2 Cole you nil that was Friday night takes something quite special or very fortunate to beat Cole you goalkeeper Shamal George uh, and that's what Tramia had here with uh, Hawks's looping deflected strike from range which put them one up. There can be no doubt who the better side was here. Um, And there can be no doubt that Colchester's struggles continue and are very real and concerning. Uh, And Tranmere potentially are soon to cut loose, which is quite exciting. Uh, I just think that at this stage, we're at the point, George, where we can pinpoint a couple of teams who, when they're beaten by another club, we say to each other, let's not go too big 
on the on the victors here because they're they are playing poor opposition and certainly in Cole Yu in Scunthorpe at the moment we don't think it takes a huge amount to get past them so I don't want to go too big on Tranmere uh, but another clean sheet it's only four goals conceded in 11 uh, four wins on the bounce at Prenton Park and yeah as discussed on the betting show I think Mellon has hit upon a system and a, a core personnel within that that works pretty well. And I think that they, I do think that they will start to cut loose a little bit more in, in terms of that attacking threat. Uh, albeit currently Peter Clark from set pieces is still their number one threat. Uh, Walsall <laughs> 2, Salford 1 was a, a standout result of the weekend and a good performance as well from Sadlers. <clears throat> yeah, another manager I think has got to be quite concerned um, or a bit, cons- yeah, a bit fearful of, of what's ahead uh, in terms of Guy Bowie and Salford because they just do not look like anywhere near uh, a team who who could even challenge. I think they look like a worse side than last season, to be honest, at the moment. Um, the uh, I know I mentioned it with Sheffield Wednesday. They just don't look like a side who are ever going to be able to just grab a game by the scruff of the neck and win it comfortably and w- without any fuss. Um, they, the defending for the goals was poor. You were just apoplectic when you saw Conor Wilkinson's goal. Um, livid about the inability to not show him outside onto his weaker right foot. We know, you know, you said to me, it's the most Conor Wilkinson goal you've ever seen. And I said, well, what did he, sh- is it a shot from wide? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we, we've seen it all before. Um, and they should know that and they should know to show him onto his right foot. Um, but they didn't. And that was a goal. You know, I love that Walsall scored in the first, and the 95th minute. There's something poetic about that <laughs> in, a, in a 2-1 win. Uh, it's a big result for Matty Taylor, who's probably under his own pressure. Although I do think that the project they're undertaking at Warsaw means he'll get a bit more slack maybe than, than other managers who've been coming given that he's been appointed by the sporting director um, so yeah a big win for them but just loads of, of Salford players who are just performing at a, at a pretty low level you know McElhaney hasn't had the same player at all Josh Morris uh, to, to Lund I mean they're just these are guys who should be operating at the top level of, of League 2 there's no excuse for there not to be um, and I just think that yeah that uh, I don't want to advocate them making the change of manager because I think that change the manager three times last season was not a good idea. But I, I can't help but feel like the one that they've ended up settling on isn't the right fit. And there will be somebody out there um, who can do a better job with this group uh, personally because they, they look miles off it. Well, Ginev was in the stands, wasn't he? Uh, and he will have probably been quite impressed with Walsall, particularly their performance out of possession. They kept a really good shape, restricted Salford to, to nothing, basically. So I'm definitely keen to see more of that from Matty Taylor. Matt Taylor's uh, Sadlers. And yeah, as you say, Wilkinson, we know, has the individual quality. And we've seen it with the first goal from Kieran Phillips and recently from George Miller as well. They do have the players who are scoring quality individual goals at the moment, even if the attacking process so far for, for Walsall hasn't quite clicked. But uh, you know, more of that, please, I guess is what I'm saying to Sadlers. And then Rochdale nil Crawley one was a, another eye-catching win for Crawley. That's four wins in their last six uh, with a draw and a defeat. They're one of the form teams in the league. Now, they've all been one nils or two ones. Uh, do I think they might be running a bit hot? Yes. Would I discuss overperforming your underlying numbers with John Yems? No. But they are plenty good enough to achieve their number one goal, Crawley Town, which with that, with their budget and particularly where they recruit players from has to be first and foremost, staying in the league. And, of course, after, what, two weeks of the season, there was a lot of angst kicking around, particularly after that 6-3 defeat by Forest Green. But I think we look back now, a slow start to the season and getting thumped by its best team, the league's best team, rather. Not a big deal. Uh, And I'm kind of rubbing, scratching my head a little bit about Rochdale at the moment. Uh, They've got the second highest XG4 in the league from open play per opter and possibly actually Mm. uh, open play and set pieces combined. 
mid-table defensive numbers. Normally, I'd expect a team with that combination to be better than 12 points from 11 games. So clearly speaks to some execution issues. Um, we saw that in this game. You know, sloppy at the back for the goal they conceded. Missed a golden chance to, to make it 1-1 uh, in the second half and, and lose the game 1-0. That I noticed looking at the foot stats website, which is quite good for shots, shots on target, conversion rate, stuff like that. They are the least accurate shooters in the league, Rochdale, in terms of their shots to shots on target uh, ratio. So plenty to improve on. But I, but equally, I don't think they're miles off it. You know, they haven't scored a goal in four league games, which is miserable. But I don't think they're a million miles away. So a bit of a peculiar one at the moment. I guess what I'm saying is I'm not that worried about Dale's poor form. Uh, George, there were four draws in League Two. Newport nil, Bradford nil. Barrow won, Leighton, Orient won. I wrote Leighton Oldham on my notes there. That'd be a good side, <laughs> based week. somewhere in the Midlands. Uh, Stevenage 2, Exeter 0. Uh, sorry, no, Stevenage 2, Exeter 2. Having a nightmare here. Probably nervous about talking to William Hondemark. Uh, and uh, Mansfield 0, Oldham 0. Was there anything within those games that you wanted to flag up before we move on to William? Just a word on Mansfield. Um, because they drew the game 0-0. They were very lucky not to be behind. Um, Oldham had two massive chances towards the end of the first half, one of which hit the bar from point blank range. Um, I feel, you know, I feel like the Grim Reaper here, but I'm, I'm just something at Mansfield has to change as well. But and, and it, it isn't necessarily Clough because we know that Clough is a good manager. I mean, know that he's capable, but I mean more than capable. Um, you know, he's achieved so much. I, I just don't know what's going on there um, because they are abject. They are like so poor at the moment there's nothing redeeming to really say uh they can't just continue playing and assuming it's going to go right because they've got players who've achieved a great deal at this level in Mansfield and Salford um Mansfield more so because Mansfield genuinely look like a bottom four team at the moment um you've got to be hugely concerned for their fans something has to has to and for Mansfield you don't know what it is because they've tried so much and I mentioned the new model of of looking for a young promising um coach who's who's coached at clubs higher up but hasn't been a manager yet I think that is the blueprint for, for maybe these clubs you know you look at the managers who Mansfield have had in, in the last few years Graham Coughlin Nigel Clough um, Flickcroft you know these are all guys who are of missed out, you missed out the big you missed out the big one that goes against your point that was Dempster yeah but, I mean fair but that's again that's a promotion from within you know that that's not somebody who, who they have looked to try and spot a guy who is doing things elsewhere, who's kind of learned at a, at, a, at a different school and you can give him a job and the top job as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is, but but it's just, it's not working at all. They are they are very, very poor and it's a concern. You know, they should be beating Oldham at home. There's no doubt about that. No stag party at the moment, that's for sure. No. Um, well, let's wave goodbye to League Two and League One weekend analysis. What fun it's been, uh, George, and hopefully we still made some sense despite the uh, fairly large session that we had from Wednesday through <laughs> Sunday um, because it's really exciting and, and my absolute pleasure to say that next we're going to be talking to William Hondemark uh, of Barnsley, a player who is, as you guys may or may not know, uh, the only, the first ever player to be sponsored by Not The Top 20 podcast. Before we run the interview, here's where this all started. Back in April, maybe you weren't listening right to the end of the League 2 segment, um, but this is where this came from. I just got a bit excited after watching a game at one point. I fell in love, George, with a player. I fell in love with a lone making his first ever EFL start on Friday night. And Who's he's, that? He's called William Hondemark. 
Ah, yes. Honda Mark get set go, as the gag goes. <laughs> uh, not mine, sadly. A lot of Norwich fans already done that. He's on loan from Norwich City. He's a 20-year-old midfield player. He played on the left of a 4-4-2 in midfield, but he was narrow. He was tucked in. He's... <laughs> He's um he he's born in France, but he moved to Ireland as a kid. So I think if he was to play international football, I believe he would play for Ireland. He's on loan from Norwich, as I said. They brought him over from uh oh, I'm gonna butcher this pronunciation. I want to say Drogheda, <laughs> Drogheda, 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 uh, where he was Rider. where he was playing as a 17 year old. And he just has a lot of a lot of attributes that I look for in a player. He's big, he's strong, but he's very nimble. Got quick feet. He absolutely squashed Wes Houlihan at one point. Picked the ball <laughs> up off him, drove forward, dinked inside a man, and then slid a pass through to his teammate Thompson, I think it was, who missed a really good chance. And from then on, every time I saw him do something, it just looked it looked like quality to me. And look, uh, it's interesting because he joined on loan in January. He played like 45 minutes against Cambridge immediately. Uh, and then he hasn't played since. So he, he must have been injured. There's so little info about him since he joined. Um, Harrogate haven't even mentioned him on their website since signing, basically. So he was kind of a surprise starter, but I will be keeping a very close eye on him. I guess because he's been injured, it makes it quite difficult for, for prospective loan clubs for next season to like definitively say, yes, that's the player we want. But wow, I've seen him do some pretty cool stuff when I was watching his clips on Scout. And I, I'm going to say to you right now, George, if Hondemark goes on loan somewhere in the EFL next season... I'm going to use some of the podcast budget to sponsor him. I want him. I want him to be our first sponsored individual player because I, I think he could go a lot higher than League Two, put it that way. Um, Maybe we should become an agency, try and sign him. Not a bad shout, with respect to his current agency, of course. None. And here he is, joining us on the Not The Top 20 podcast, the only man, the only player to have ever been sponsored by us uh, as a footballer, William Hondemark of Barnsley FC. It is so great to have you on the pod, William. How are you doing? I'm really, really good. How are you? I'm very well. Never better. Never better. I've given the listeners a, a little bit of background, those who, who weren't listening on the fateful day back in April or May when uh, I spoke about you uh, off the back of a performance against uh, Cambridge for Harrogate. 5-4. I mean, pro- probably the craziest game of the whole EFL season last year. Um, now, you're, you're not someone who's particularly active on social media, um, but you reached out to us, which was so kind and thoughtful over the summer, just to thank us for our support and for having spoken to you a bit on the pod. Is it a bit weird being told, I think you said by friends and family, that there are these dudes who are talking about you in very glowing terms? I think I even said I'd fallen in love. Is that a bit odd? <laughs> um, I wouldn't call it odd. I would just say it's surprising sometimes. It can surprise you sometimes when um, I've just come out and just played one game and then out of nowhere I'm getting uh, clips sent to me of like, this podcast and I'm thinking, I only play one game and they even like, pick up on me and it's a bit surprising yeah fair enough i mean you're not it's not new for you necessarily to have a lot of people uh giving you a lot of praise because um we want to get an idea of your background of your story and you started playing senior football as a, at a very young age even if over the last few years since you moved over and joined norwich you haven't got a ton of senior minutes under your belt you did start earlier than most right over at uh Drogheda. is that how you say it I've, I've always been bad at pronouncing that one yeah, it's dried up. But yeah, I started at, um, I just turned 17 when I started playing senior football. So I was still quite young, a lot to learn. And, but it did give me a lot of um, advantages, obviously, compared to other players playing the men's game quite early. And I mean, what was it like bursting into the first team in, in those days? Was it was it a baptism of fire or were you someone who had developed physically to the point where you, you weren't necessarily struggling against senior players at that age? How, how would you describe you know, a few years on, what it was like for you and how you sort of held your own at that level, at that age? 
um, personally hadn't filled out yet and hadn't necessarily filled out, but I was already quite physically there. I was quite imposing already. So I think that definitely helped me adapt and not struggle as much. And I think that in terms of then the level, I think that the level obviously being still first team, but not as high as possibly it could be in England, that enabled me to maybe have a comfort level where I could play my game and really not need that much adaptation. I pretty much from day one um, strived in that league. So that would definitely helped in terms of physically already being quite imposed at 17. And also technically I was well within the standards of that league. And it wasn't, that long before there were a lot of scouts coming to watch a lot of uh transfer speculation how did you cope with that at a really young age i think you're still at school weren't you when you were playing that first team football over in the league of ireland yeah i was currently i think it's called i think it's a levels you call it here the last exam before you go to uni and i was currently still finishing them at six months left before i finished my um it's called the leaving certain Ireland. so I had six months left and I got pulled over by the coach before training, telling me that there's Norwich and two of the clubs coming in that are looking to take you on trial and are interested in signing you. And, um, it's obviously very surprising. Obviously, I, don't, I hadn't played that many games. I'd played maybe 10 games at that point with the first team. So it can obviously be surprising and can obviously be a big going from just training twice a week to the Norwich where you're training every single day, you're full-time, you're like getting so much invested into you can obviously be quite a jump and quite surprising, but I think that with my family there, I never really felt um, it was too much. It was always, we always took our time, explained everything. You know, we talked about this this choice of moving over and it was always very calm and thoughtful and everything that we did was very explained and we all did it together. So I never really felt overwhelmed or like it was something I couldn't achieve. Norwich are a club who we're not covering this season because they're in the Premier League but of course we have covered at, at length over the last five years or so and we've always given them a huge amount of credit for the way that they operate the way that they are run uh, clear communication about their strategy from the very top level and I think it, albeit they do have tough times or have had tough times at Premier League level that is something that the fans really appreciate kind of every fan pretty much knows how the, the club wants to operate because of the way that it is explained to them by Stuart Webber, by Daniel Farker, by the owners, whoever that might be. And I wonder if, as a young player particularly, it's that sort of communication and, and a bit like what you've said, having things explained and laid out for you very clearly, does that make you lean towards choosing that club when you're making a big decision to move country at such a young age? Definitely, yeah. Even the way they even... Um came about asked me was that they invited my whole family over for a day to show my parents, my mom, my dad, my little brother, the whole facility and talk with them. And so from before I even signed from the get-go, they were always very courteous and very careful with how they took care of me. And obviously my parents obviously seen that instantly and felt obviously naturally attracted to that club. And then once I was there, it was very clear that accommodation was something that they had everything from accommodation to trainings to Flights, everything was always handled for me. I never booked a flight while being at Norwich. It was always booked for me. Uh, my accommodation, drivers, everything like that was always top. It was always like top standard. And when you're obviously 17, 18, moving away from home, your parents obviously want to make sure that you have all that to make sure you're not too lost and too overwhelmed. So that was definitely something that I can give credit to Norwich for. That I'll always remember that I never really felt there was anything I needed to do, I could always just call the secretary or call the player care manager or anyone and they would always take care of it for me or already have taken care of it. There's a, a piece in, uh, from a, an Irish newspaper from around the time that you, you moved over to Norwich uh, in which it says that 
you had made the decision to stick around to finish your leaving cert, I think you said, the equivalent of A-levels. I mean, did you really want to do that? Or was, you know, was that your parents saying, come on, this is the best for you? Because I think I'd have been pretty keen to get over and start playing some football full-time. Yeah, no, it was obviously mainly my parents, I've got to admit, that it wasn't necessarily my push to do that. But obviously, I obviously, once we explained and sat down, I obviously was on board with it as well. I wasn't, I didn't want to do it. Because I obviously understood that as much as I could have even the best career, never mind injury, the best career, and you could still, in your 30, 35, 40, you decide that you want to go work or do something. So having that A-levels, as you call it in England, there for me is always going to help me. Mm. And you and, and you spent because... two years at Norwich uh, before leaving in the summer. So you're, you're 20 now. Uh, you joined, I think, when you were about 18 years old. H- how do you look back at, at two years as a Norwich City player? Not a huge amount of first-team senior appearances, it's difficult when a club is is winning promotion, suffering relegation at the very, very highest level of English football. Uh, how do you personally reflect on those two years, having moved over from Ireland? I think they really, really helped me, if I'm honest. I think that from, obviously, as I said, training twice twice a week to now every day was a big, big step for me. And Norwich really did it well. They never really rushed me. They, first year was really tough and they understood that I did a lot of extra fitness work a lot of extra gym work to get myself back up to standard to their standards that I'd never I never even knew that there was kids training every day from the age of six but my teammates were like ex-Arsenal players ex-Liverpool players and they've been doing that so me to get myself to that standard was a big big push and Norwich really took care of that they didn't rush me they just pushed me to my limits every day and made sure that I got to that so that then on my second season I was like really doing well and that's when I managed to get myself to loan. So that's all credit to the work that I've done with the staff and whatever in my first year to really um, get myself to that standard of really, to be honest, the highest standard. And that's something that I think a lot of clubs mightn't have done. They might have just said, listen, you're not at our standard. Not a lot of clubs would have had the patience to to say, well, fitness-wise isn't here, but we'll get onto that. And it, it took a while for me because I'm a big lad, so it's not as easy for me. Sometimes when you're bigger, running a lot is much harder, you carry much more weight. so. And they still took the time and coaches, staff were always very patient explaining me stuff. That they knew that I was a very raw talent, if that makes sense. I'd never had any training. I'd never been in an academy. So when you're like coming there from from playing twice a week with uh, adults who have part-time jobs, it's like a big, big change. So that is something that I always know that I'll always give myself credit for and give the club credit for because now being where I am is definitely, I wouldn't have got here without that first year, year and a half, even two years of, I'd say, induction training of getting them bases and basics, like not the basics of Ireland, but the basics of the elite football, getting them down and sort of first. That's fascinating to hear because, I mean, you, you are not an old footballer now, age 20. There is uh, a, a very, very long career ahead of you. But sometimes you hear, particularly nowadays, where I think often Agents particularly cop some flack for putting pressure on young players to to demand game time, to demand senior minutes when you know there's never enough to go around. Uh, from your perspective, it, you know you understand where you've come from in terms of being a, not being a professional player until you move there, uh, and it feels like you're sort of the, the gratitude for that professionalism part of the game, which maybe you needed that a kid from a who'd been in an academy in, in in the Premier League since they were like eight years old they might have already had that, they might have already taken that for granted, whereas you you kind of recognise that you already, well, that you needed that that development time spent on you. I think that's fascinating. Uh, talk to me about 
the loan spell to Harrogate? Because you must have been really excited to get out there and go and play some senior football. Your performances for Norwich under-23s were really catching the eye. You played some games in the what we call the pizza trophy um, and caught the eye on a few occasions there. And uh, then you go to Harrogate and until I saw you play it, right towards the end of the season against Cambridge, we didn't really get to see you very much. What, what was the story there? No, it was, um, if I'm honest, it was a tough period for me. It was very challenging mentally because I'd come from a change room where obviously when you're playing 23s or even in Ireland, it's not the same mentality as when you're in elite. You know, it's much more, um, you need the result no matter what. Um, doesn't matter how we play, we need the result. And not that the style of play is like, not, it's not like horrible or anything, but it's much more direct and the games are much more direct and it's really, really result based. And that's, I've never experienced that before. So coming to that change room, it took me some, some, a couple of months of adaptation for me. It took me a bit longer than it might for others or a bit shorter than it might for others. I don't know. It's just for me personally, it took me a little while because it's like a big mental switch shift of every day we come in and we'd be told that we just need to make folks on the basics that nourish and now you're getting told, doesn't matter, just get the result. And it's obviously it. A big change and that was something that looking in the moment you're obviously very frustrated you're thinking I just want to play and but now when you're like I can put it into perspective now and I'm like now apparently I'm thinking thank god I had those six months because like it got me it was tough but it gave me that now that edge of I can switch into that mental football mode now I know what it's like to need results I can I've been there I've seen it and I've been able to like see it from an outside perspective when I wasn't in the squad I was on the bench and I'm looking at everyone and I'm looking at how everyone's conducting themselves and the change room talks and how the players talk to each other. And I'm like, realizing all that, that I'd never, never seen before in my life. So it's like, it was in the moment, you're very frustrated because you're not playing. But when you realize and take a step back and you start realizing that you needed that, you needed to see that. And maybe it was better that you weren't necessarily involved in it, that you were looking from the outside that we could understand it and, and add it to your game. Because now when I came to Barnsley and I'm with the 23s and I got told I'm stepping into the first team, I can recall on those memories and recall on those moments that I had with, with um, Harrogate. I can, and I can tell myself, okay, now this time I will be in it. So let's use everything that I've been able to see here that I've been told, the feedback, everything, and use it to be able to, be able to then within two weeks make my championship debut. Yeah, and I, I guess in particular the club that you joined on loan, I mean, we love watching Harrogate, particularly for that really quick, direct style that they've played since joining the EFL at the start of last season. But because of where they've come from, uh, being a non-league side until the start of last season, a lot of their players, and particularly quite a strong core that have been at the club now for quite some time and really make up the core of, of the first team still to this day, despite their progression over the years, a lot of those guys have played most of their careers in non-league and it's not hard to see how that hunger and maybe a little bit of aggression is the wrong word, but just making sure that anyone who gets signed by Harrogate knows it's not going to be easy to go straight into this team because those are their spots. Is that that particularly was an interesting club for you to join on that level? Some really strong sort of veteran player dressing room. Yeah, it definitely had it. You could tell from the minute I got to know everyone and kind of like did a bit of research on the previous seasons and I could, you could really tell that there was a very very strong core as you said there was players like Josh Falkenham and other players like Lloyd and a, a lot of players who've been there through um, all their promotions were still like you said are still there to, to this day and still playing so I could tell that it was a club that had a very strong core from the manager to the players who known each other been through promotions and yeah obviously stepping into that 
is obviously tough because you're trying to break that, not necessarily break it as in um, end, but you're trying to break it as in you're trying to make find your spot in it. And it's obviously very tough for a young player who's like 19 trying to like break into that when you're coming from Norwich on loan. So that was obviously something that I just had to, in the moment, I it's hard to understand that in the moment you just focus on you, you're just thinking, why am I not playing? But obviously now when I'm not necessarily older, but I'm like, from a different point of view, I can realise that it was good for me because it taught me how football, how it works. Sometimes you will come into the change room and there's going to be players that have been there for a while. It's going to be even harder than it might be at a team where it might be that necessarily that like uh, squad of players who's been there. It might be just a new team and you get to walk straight in. Sometimes it's not that easy. Sometimes it takes a bit longer. Sometimes it just takes different, take different routes and it doesn't matter the route that it takes. Obviously, you just need to focus on the end goal, but that was a route that I had to take and it was a tough one. But now... If I'm honest, I'm quite grateful for it. Yeah, definitely get the idea that you're someone who reflects a lot and, and you know, looks for the positives rather than necessarily feeling hard done by in tough situations. The, the problem, the may, well, I guess, and I'm projecting here, but the problem from someone who analyses the game uh, in the way that I do that arises from not getting very many minutes when you're on that loan is that when you find yourself out of contract that summer as a young player, apart from a couple of people randomly banging on about you on a podcast after one game and 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 those who would have watched a lot of under 23s football with Norwich where where you excelled for some time there's not a huge amount of senior minutes to show for yourself and you are joining hundreds thousands of players in being out of contract uh, at a time where we were told with covid particularly and smaller budgets financial restraints that clubs were under you know we were going to see probably fewer movements in the in the transfer market so it was you know, it's amazing to hear you talk about the positives of, of the last two years where I'm sure some players would have felt a lot more hard done by than you would have done. But that must have been a tough situation for you to be in and for those that represent you, whether it's agent or family, to have discussed over the summer of, of this is this is an issue with the current situation that I'm in. How, how did you approach this summer having been released by Norwich and how long before did you know that you were going to be out of contract? Um, we tried to approach it, obviously, and with Norwich obviously being very, very catering to me, we obviously had a lot of talks about this, about um, my next six months, if Harrogate wanted to design me or what was going to happen to me. And we tried to approach it really early, which is something important when you're a player. You need to not just be reactive, you need to be proactive as well and realise that even if someone does promise you a contract, that could that could end up breaking down for whatever reason. So I need to be proactive and I'd managed to, like, get that next step on the way quite early. So I tried to start that around April. But obviously, as you said, with COVID, talk could take a month, two months longer than they normally would. Mm. Contracts are becoming very slower. Uh, clubs are now asking for trials. Like it's a lot of stuff that doesn't normally happen at this age, but is like now becoming the new like normal in a way. Like trials and really extended talks and a lot of like waiting. And it's, I talked with you for, I've had, I've been really lucky that I've been able to come into contact with um, Wes Hulahan. Nice. So I, I mean, talk what, one the of the game. things that stood out most about Harrogate 4, Cambridge, no, Harrogate 5, Cambridge 4 that night was that you you squashed Wes like once or twice and not not many players <laughs> did that to Hulahan last season. And it wasn't lost on me that that was, a, a you know, an Irish midfield player who who is a, a Norwich City legend. Uh, and that that was some quite quite a nice little moment of coincidence, I thought. Yeah, it was, but um, no harsh feeling after the game. Obviously, we just talked and we exchanged numbers, and especially during that period, he was a big help to me because obviously he's been through more trust windows at his age than most players, so he knew exactly and 
I talk with my ex knowledge coach as well, and they both told me to just relax and just to, you know, put on stressing because they've been through stuff like this where the last day they're waiting and there's nothing much you can do. You can just try, just be proactive, try to stay on the phone, contact your agent, and try to be proactive and help yourself, but that you can't go out and make a contract up. So you just have to relax, and that's what I tried to do. It was very tough because my first time going through that, I'd never been through. 20 days left, still have a contract, and you're like wondering, am I going to get one? Is this club going to say yes? Could they turn around and say no? I've never really been through that, so it was definitely um, at the start very stressful, and then it became more just the stress got taken out of it once I kind of adapted, but it was still nerve wracking a little bit. But then, I mean, as as um, the talk kind of finalized, and I kind of got in contact with Barnsley, and I was also with Notts County, and then I started to see things plan out. You started, I started to realize that they were right, that there's no need to stress, it's just try to stay taken over, stay proactive, but there's no need to be stressing or because it's not going to help anything. Mm. It's interesting as someone who was following it quite closely, uh, hoping that you would get get a contract and stay in the EFL so that we could watch you week in, week out. Was I was aware uh, that you were on loan uh, on uh, on trial, sorry, uh, at Notts County for quite a few weeks. Uh, and is it quite weird being on trial somewhere? Because sometimes clubs are really good at keeping the names out of the media, and sometimes they don't seem too fussed about. I mean, what are the circumstances of, of coming in on trial somewhere? And how do you know whether you're allowed to talk about it or whether it's top secret? Because, you know, it, it, it filtered out that you were on loan at Notts County. All the fans knew for, for weeks and weeks, which is quite an unusual situation, I would say, to be in, especially as you didn't end up getting the contract at Notts. What, what were the circumstances there? Um, yeah, it was, it was um, I'd say one moment I remember that was a bit strange was after we played Derby County at home and that was a big preseason game and I was leaving the stadium and... Um, there was obviously fans at the exit, at the players' exit, and I'm walking out, and they think I was a player, and I didn't know where to sign sign their shirt or not because I'm like I'm not really a player, but I was like didn't really know what to do, and that was like a strange moment because it is kind of like weird. You obviously me being there, I've been there for like two weeks, and obviously um, you're not really sure like where to say something, whether you can talk about it, and it's a bit even for the club. I'm saying I'd say it's quite um, hectic because they obviously would prefer to just know whether to sign you or not, but with the current times they need to take extra precautions and as players you have to be able to adapt to that and still only being new like this it's really rarely that you see a first team player going on trial so i think that it is something that can be quite tricky for players trying to understand even knowing how the trial is going it's quite tricky like you go up and ask the gaffer but it's, it's only trial so you can't really like be asking the gaffer every day like a normal player so it's like a bit tricky and especially when you're young and i'm trying to know so i think for me they understood that and we did have constant talks between me and um, the manager and everything like that and then um, I'd explain to them as well my situation and everything like that so yeah I do really really I did have a good week at NOS as well I must say I had a good two weeks and um, it really helped me then when I came to Barnsley because I was already kind of fitness wise and technically wise and football wise I already played a lot of games with them played against Derby I'd done a lot of training sessions so it did really give me a good boost It's not lost on me that Although there's three divisions between Notts and Barnsley, they are two teams who very specifically use a lot of data in their recruitment uh, and probably recruit quite 
creatively uh, a bit outside the box compared to teams in, in their division um, with Notts County's owners and Barnsley's owners having a, a fairly similar approach. So, I mean, it could be complete coincidence. I suspect not. Uh, teams tend to recruit um, for, for certain reasons. And I just wonder, because Barnsley, you know, they announced your signing as an under-23s player. As you mentioned, you were, you were straight in the match day squad for a championship game against Bournemouth. You, you came on against Stoke, uh, which I definitely want to ask you about because that one got pretty lively. Um, and, you know, you, you've been part of a few matchday squads already. H- how was your, or how was Barnsley's interest in you uh, sort of communicated to you and how did those discussions go that, that made you think, yeah, this is this is the right place for me? Um, actually, I heard about Barnsley after I'd heard about Nuts, so I'd already decided to come into Nuts on trial and I heard about Barnsley after and it was obviously a bit... Um, I would say a bit tricky for me to handle that because I told Nuts I'm coming in and then I just heard from Barnsley then that actually want you in and it's like I can't just leave Nuts now but I kind of like if I can't put all my eggs in one basket so it's kind of like a bit tricky when you You'd probably you want your eggs like, in the in the championship club basket over a national league club basket my, my word's not yours but I get what you're saying That's Yeah exactly so then I end up having to sit down and say listen I can either try to get myself a contract on Nuts and try to fight for a national league team but and I maybe have more chances of getting minutes, but I could also just give them everything and try into the championship team because then I know that if I manage to win both, I know which one I prefer. So I ended up just saying, listen, I know how good I am. I know how good I can be if I put my head down. So I just said, I want to try advising. I just came here, got myself a contract. And then within, like, as you said, like a week, I, I pretty much signed and been at the club less than a week and I'd already been told, Listen, you're with the first team now. You're only playing games with 23s. You're full-time first team now. That's awesome. You said there, you know you know what sort of player you are. You, you think you know what sort of player that you can become. I, I liked what I saw uh, famously six months ago. For, for Barnsley fans who might be listening to this and other followers of the championship and, and talented young players, will. it's great to ask the player themselves, what what sort of player do you think you are? How, how do you consider yourself as a footballer, your your favourite role, your best position, I guess, and, and strengths of your games, things that you really work hard on to try and improve? Um, actually, my best position, first of all, to start is being a box-to-box midfielder, so an eight. And because I would say I'm quite different as in that I bring both sides of the game, as in I can play defensively and offensively at the same time, pretty much. This is why, but as you made it clear, they want me to be box-to-box, they want me to be really expressive, be creative, use your like, power going forward. And then my creativity in the final third, which is, I really developed that at Norwich because I played as a, pretty much a 10. So my creativity going forward came, came from Norwich pretty much playing as a 10 and being implicated in lots of forward chances. And then my defensive nature has always been there. I've always been quite smart. So being able to predict the opponent and read passes and interceptions has always been a huge, huge part of my game. So when you've got the interception part and the reading the play and then the offensive power and strength that I have mixed with your technical ability that I have that I've worked on a lot, which is the area that I work on the most. It's the area that I feel that it's where a lot of players will fall down because physically everyone can work on stuff, but technically is where you see the difference between elite players and maybe champ players and D1 players. Usually it's technically that you see the difference. So that's the part that I work on the most, already having a solid base. So with my physical ability, reading the play and technical ability, then I was always going to be an eight box to box and just be running yeah. everywhere on the pitch pretty much. 
you like to carry it, don't you? You got you, you you do like to carry the ball forward, which is always pretty exciting to watch. But it's that it's that final pass as well, that creativity in the final third that you're really looking to to work hard on. Exactly, yeah, that's the definitely that's the one that I think once you get that bit, then the sky's the limit. Once you get goals, once you've done everything else and you add goals and assists, then you're pretty much the complete midfielder. It sounds like, and this is exciting for us to listen to, I think, you know, as as you, you know now after uh, the two years that you've had since you moved over from Ireland, but I guess even including uh, what an amazing start it was to your senior career over in Ireland, you have experienced quite a lot already in, in three years, let's say, in the game, uh, highs and lows, and, and you know how difficult it can be. But it feels to me, coming through quite clearly, is quite a lot of excitement as well about about finally being able to show your ability and finally being able to become the senior professional in English football that I guess must have always been a, a target. What what do you think motivates you most? What drives you the most? Uh, what's your ambition level been uh, throughout your life targeting being a professional footballer? Um, well, for me, I can always remember one, there's always one vivid moment, which is I was like about 12, 13 and um, I wasn't allowed to watch much of the day at night. So I used to have to record it and watch it in the morning when I had breakfast before school. And I used to always watch it and say that, like, I'd love to be able to be one day myself and watch it today and be one of those players who plays week in, week out in front of 20, 30, 40,000 people, trains every day on like, the best pitches and has that as a life. That's, I always dream about that, just watching match a day every morning. I'd watch it, having breakfast and just think, I wish one day I could be like that. And then that's always been something that, that was as a child, but it never really changed. I still always want that, having that... Um, not necessarily lifestyle, but that um, ambition of that being able to be my job, what I earn my money from, and my main occupation, football, and being able to really enjoy, because it's obviously a rare thing that people get to have a job and occupation that you enjoy. It's really rare. So when I found one and realized that I could, it was achievable, then it was never really, I never really looked anywhere else but that moment. And I can, can allow me to do a lot of things for my family, for me, but mainly, it can allow me to have really a happy lifestyle. And that's the main thing when you can have a job where you enjoy it every day. Obviously, it's going to be highs and lows, but in the main, but you enjoy it. You're training every day, you're playing. It was never really, that's the thing that motivates me every day is being able to achieve that to a level where I know that, okay, when you're at 25, playing the Premier League, you know, this is what I do now. And that's, you never really get to achieve that. You see players at 28 get injured. So you never really get to know that you've achieved it, but it's that constant striving to make sure I, get that get to that and then if I do manage to get to that then I better keep that for as long as possible I tell you what we we did a we've we've been big fans of Irish midfielder Connor Harahan for many years obviously former favorite of Barnsley and their fans uh someone whose whose career anyone would be lucky to have who, who worked his way up having moved over from Ireland n- didn't get a chance at Sunderland didn't get a chance at Ipswich dropped down to League Two played for Plymouth was made captain within a year or two, uh, even in his early 20s, then got the move to Barnsley in League One, captain them, then got the, the move to the Championship with Aston Villa uh, and then won promotion to the Premier League with Aston Villa. It's, it's amazing how careers can develop. There's no one pathway, is there? And I guess there's an uncertainty there as a, as a young player, but surely some excitement as well. And, and you know, he, he has spoken a lot and you mentioned it at the, at the top of our interview that, you know, the move over from Ireland to, to England as a teenager essentially finishing schools some players make it earlier some later it's not an easy thing 
you know personally to do and it's not just the the change of of culture um but the pressure as well that you put on yourself uh, as a as a young professional who as you've just mentioned wants to make it for a number of reasons one of which is to you know help help your family situation that that pressure it must be really difficult as as a young man moving over yeah i think that it can be i think it definitely can be something that can overwhelm people a lot if possibly you're not doing as well and it's usually when you're not doing as well that you start realizing i'm letting this person down or that person down and that's usually the way footballers and people think in general that when we're like not doing well we'll just look at every single negative and amplify it and think yeah i'm letting everyone down now i think that that's obviously not the best way to think but it's natural to think that obviously if your parents mean a lot to you and you have a chance to really do something that could help them and now you're not doing as well it's natural to think that especially when obviously you left you left home because we don't see them as, as much so it's more it's even bigger when you've left home because you're thinking that i owe them this now i've left home it's now my job and now it's my duty and that's it's a natural thing to feel i think and i think that it, it is coming for a lot of players to feel that and with my family always being in contact and always helping me always after every game i thought i thought my parents and so i've never really felt that necessarily i've always obviously felt that I owe them a certain amount obviously that's the basis to work hard every day for them but I've never felt that pressure of needing to do anything of like, I need to achieve this I've always felt like I'll just work hard and then they'll be proud of me no matter what if I achieve it or if I don't it's not my hands but I'll just do as much as I can and I know that they'll never be anything but proud of me then mm. and uh, Wikipedia is not always the best place to to get your information but um, it, do, it does say on on your wiki page that you, your family moved over from France, where you were born, uh, over to Dublin, I think when you were you were pretty young, sort of five years old. So it'd be interesting to know a little bit more about your background and and that move uh, growing up as or well, growing up in France for a few years and then the move to to, to Dublin. Yeah, I moved over when I was um, I was about six. So I was going on six, and it was quite tough. Personally, it was very very tough because I didn't speak a word of English. And I started school instantly. So I remember my mom used to tell me because I can't vividly remember, but that I was crying every day in the morning. I would cry the whole journey to school because I didn't know how to speak a word of English for the first couple of months. And then pick, I picked it up quite quickly being so young. Your brain is like a sponge. You just pick up stuff at a very fast rate. But the first few months were very tough. And then from there, I think being in Ireland was a big help for me because the natural, I think it's, I don't know if it's like, in the water where everyone seems to be very friendly and everyone seems to take care of everyone quite well. So I, I was into very good skills and all my friends always took care of me. I never got isolated. It could have been very easy, obviously, to get isolated, but I was always welcomed and I was always helped. So that when you're like six, seven and you're trying to like find friends and trying to figure out who's who and what can I do here and are you my friend? And it was very nice to have that feeling of like everyone's there for you. And I remember when I was, I think I would have been 10. I was scared to go outside for a period because I moved to a new house and friends at that house who didn't know me came knocking to ask me to come out because they knew that I was new and they knew that I'd be scared so they came and asked my mom could, could William come out with us because we know he's new and we don't want him to be scared. That's so nice and and it's amazing sporting culture in Ireland as well not just football but also uh, some of the fairly specific Irish sports. Were, were you ever tempted to try out for a career as a Gaelic <laughs> footballer instead? Um, I have been asked a couple of times to play rugby, Gaelic, hurling, any sport you can name, I've been asked to play it. But my parents and my family being fully French could never be anything but football. <laughs> could never be anything but 
football. And obviously, I, we've tried it a couple of times. My brother, who's in their 10, he plays it for a team. So it's not a problem. It's just that for me, when obviously being born in France and having that very strong French style, I was always going to play just football. Anytime I had free time in the yard at lunch break after school um, at home, it was always going to be kicking a ball. Do you still retain quite a strong sort of French culture uh, despite not having lived there since since you were younger? Do you feel a very strong connection to France? Yeah, I definitely do. I definitely because my entire family, well, no, I mean, my brother's Irish, but my entire family stayed in France. Once we moved, everyone else stayed. So every time I visit my grandparents, cousins, aunties, it's always in France. Christmas is often in France. Summer is often in France. So we always see, personally, I always felt a very strong Irish tie being where I grew up and where I have all my friends but the French side never left it always stayed close to me and we speak at home every day so it was always going to be something that was going to stay very rigid inside of me Desperately while you were talking trying to remember what year the Thierry Henry handball France versus Republic of Ireland <laughs> incident was I think it was 2009 so that must have been a, a tough one conflicting I remember because me and my dad actually got tickets to I'm not sure if it was that game that was in Ireland but one of them, them two games because it was it was um it was two legged, and we got a ticket to one of those games and we went to it. And me and my dad obviously were a French fan, so I was with my French jersey. And on the way home, I had to put my jersey under my hoodie because I just you normally put it on top, but I had to put it under because my dad said just put it under just in case. Yeah, well, after after how nicely you'd been treated by everyone in Ireland since you'd moved over, <laughs> that would have been a real you know been spitting in their face. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. So that was for the next couple of weeks, months, we just had to keep a low profile on on the French side. Yeah, fair enough. Well, the Nations League win last night, I'm sure, would have brought you plenty of joy. Um, just before we let you go, you have played some championship minutes already this season, which is really exciting. You know, you joined, I think it was just after the window finished because you're a free agent. That was allowed to happen. Uh, and as mentioned, you know, a, a first team player uh, for Barnsley, playing games for the development squad, the under 23s, uh, in order to, to get some sharpness and to settle into the club. But you came on against Stoke live on Sky, um, you know, not long after signing, really. Uh, uh, how was that? Was it sort of 20 minutes or so, I think? Uh, how did you find your, your first taste of championship football? Uh, I really, really enjoyed it too, for especially I think it was added enjoyment with the fans because obviously you haven't had fans for a long, long time. Yeah. So my first game back was in Stoke City Stadium, so that was obviously definitely an environment. I guess, uh, even, I guess even pre-COVID, you know, playing for Norwich's under-23s development squads, not a lot of fans there. So it's probably first taste of proper atmosphere since some of those tasty drawheader games back in the League of Ireland. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Pretty much it was. So obviously it's a big step up, I think, for... Both of the games that I played, there was over 15,000 people there. So it was, I really, really relished those moments and enjoyed them from, from, um, because of the fans. Also, the size of the games. Obviously, I'm playing championship games now. So they're really big games. They're league games. These aren't cup games. So it was when you're like 20, trying to like, trying to just get into the Brands League, like first team, and then you're, all of a sudden you're like playing the last 15 or the entire half of a championship league game that you need to win. It's, a big responsibility but it's one that I think every player would like love to get and towards the end of that game quite a quite a lively scuffle that, <laughs> that kicked off uh, around the touchline now like I'm not interested in coming across like some sort of stalker but obviously I was watching I was excited for you to make your debut and I was I was looking forward to seeing how you respond to uh, to your first sort of proper scuffle right in the mixer 
William, right <laughs> in the mixer. Is that something we can expect? Is that is that you? Are you you seem quite chilled out over this call, but fiery on the pitch. No, I'm very, I'm very, very chilled out person. I'm very relaxed, and anyone that knows me knows I'm, I'm very, very relaxed. But um, there's just moments when I think when I'm in a game and I'm like already so like zoned in on the game that if it's, if something happens and I hear like my teammates involved, I'll just be like straight there and it's not that I'm not aggressive or that I want to fight it's just that I'll just like be trying to protect my teammates and just make sure that we're not like everyone we're all good like we're all safe we're all fine because obviously the worst thing to see is when you see like three Stoke City players on one Brunsby player that's like you don't really want to be seeing that everyone's wants to make sure that if you, you your mates over there that you're backing him that you're making sure he's fine that he's not getting grabbed by anyone that was the main thing it wasn't necessarily it wasn't to fight or to like cause any trouble it was pretty just to break it up and try Get all our players, our staff, just on their side, fine, safe. That everyone's just not getting any stupid cars because even I ended up getting a yellow. Yeah, fuming, fuming about that. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, William, we'll, we'll let you go now. Uh, uh, also, just lastly, this is very random, but I uh, I studied French at a university, so I've, I've also got some ties to, to French culture. I lived in Paris for a year when I was younger. Um, and why are you not called Guillaume? Why are you William, not Guillaume? Um, I think it's because when they're picking, when parents are picking names, my mom has always had a thing for really elegant um, British names. Oh, nice! She finds them really because she finds them really like timeless. Like some names, like for my brother's name is um, Michael and William, and as she says, they're names that will forever be in history and they'll always be using the quite elegant names. So she's always tried to like find names like that, and she found obviously for me William, which is a name that. We can sit here forever naming Williams from the history and that there will be Williams in the future. So, and is, is it bad that when Michael you said like, my my mother was a fan of, I thought you were going to say William Gallas? <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm just messing. No. I'm just messing. Well, um, I mean, you are. Uh, we, we're going to be closely tied, I'm afraid. Not the top twenty, and William Hondemark uh, and everyone listening has been so excited to hear from you. Um, we have a, a hell of a community here of passionate football fans following the lower leagues but crucially um, following young talented players hopefully through the leagues and up to the very top level so it's really cool to have this link with you now uh, so thank you for humoring us as well because uh, as I keep saying I, I probably would have been a bit freaked out if I was you but you're definitely the first ever player to email us We've had some DMs before, but you're the first player to email us and really appreciated that over the summer. It was great to hear from you. And obviously, we've caught up a little bit throughout the season. Uh, and here we are now talking on the podcast. We are the official sponsors of William Hondemark with Barnsley. <laughs> I think just the home kit, which feels harsh for the price. I would like that away kit as well. It's quite nice, the green one. But that's fine. I was told very specifically that because of COVID, there won't, there won't unfortunately be some sort of end of season dinner where we can drink some French wine and, and catch up then. So that's not on the cards, but you've come on the podcast. So I think that's a fair, uh, that's a fair exchange. Yeah. Obviously I've even seen how the season goes. If something good happens to me, hopefully we can see each other and try to find a nice like middle ground we'll say and try to go for food or something like that. That would be great. Well, you've got a lot of supporters, uh, I'm sure, over in France, in Ireland. Uh, I know a lot of the Norwich fans who watched the, the youth teams were a big fan of you as a player as well. Uh, and you've got the, the full support of Not The Top 20 pod as well. So um, really appreciate your time. I know everyone will have really enjoyed getting to know you, as I have. Uh, and hopefully we'll catch up again in a, in a few months and see how you're getting on. A couple more scuffles, maybe some goals and some assists. That would be good. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, definitely we can catch up at any time. Hopefully things have gotten better and I've got more minutes. So. Top man, William. We'll speak again soon. No problem. Take care.